long can we sit in the silence? I'm Seth. Hi. I get to uh, serve here on staff. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, a lot of times I work with the music side of things, the creative side of things, uh, but, but sometimes I also get to share the word, which I'm really excited to do with you today. Uh, we've been in this series called uh, Breathe. Breathe, the series was inspired by uh, several current events um, that we've been facing as a nation, uh, but at the end of the day, Breathe is really a series about the Holy Spirit. You're going to hear me use the term in the Greek a lot today, and I'm going to start with that now. In the Greek, the word breath and the word spirit are the very same word, pneuma. And um, we believe that the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus breathed on the disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit, we, we, we believe that the Holy Spirit is our teacher, our guide the one we lean into, the one that we are led by, the one who calls to remembrance the things that Jesus has said, and that what Jesus said is that he would even tell us of things to come. What's up, team? Hi. Great job this morning. <laughs> Didn't they do great? I know what that's like. I know what, oh, there goes the pack. All right. Um, we've been in this series, and uh, today we're going to be concluding that series. Um, and the topic of today is fruit. Uh, and, and, the, and the title, if you're taking notes, is called Pomology, which I'll explain here in uh, just a few minutes. minutes. Pomology. Um, we're going to jump into Scripture first. That's what we're here for, right? Yeah. To hear the Word. We're going to be looking at two primary passages today. That's John chapter 15 and Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to be turning in my paper Bible today because I'm feeling especially uh, vintage and <laughs> traditional and old school. And also just because I love my paper Bible. I don't like paper in general, in case you were uh, interested. I have my good friend Stephen Knoll on the front, who is the paper proponent on staff. And then you have me and you have Bobby Carmody, who are the paper do-whatever-we-can-to-avoid-it um, people. But today we're going to go with paper. Oh, my. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Okay, heal them if they are hurt. John chapter 15, to lay the stage a little bit. Uh, John is the gospel account written by the disciple, John one of the 12, one of those very close to Jesus. Uh, there are three that are mentioned in particular as those close to Jesus uh, among the 12, and that is Peter, James, and John. John is an interesting guy. If you've ever read his gospel account, you'll notice that he is confident, to say the least, that he is the one whom Jesus loved, which is true, but it's an interesting to point out. Interesting thing to point out about yourself in the third person as if someone else is talking about you. Kind of like Moses pointing out in the third person that he was the meekest man in the world. <laughs> Moses, we see you, bro. We see you calling yourself, ironically, the meekest man in the world. But anyway, John's gospel is known as the most different of the four. We know the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels. They are, they're very similar in nature. And then John has... He just has his own way of saying things. In the words of Buddy the Elf, I would say that John is a little swirly-twirly. 
You know what I mean? Um, he, he, he uses very interesting kind of romantic poetic language. And, uh, but, but what's beautiful is it's really, the language is really good at communicating the heart and the love of God. And um, a lot of times when uh, we have, you know, new believers here, we encourage them to begin in the book of John because it's such a beautiful expression of, of God's heart toward us. So in John chapter 15, we see Jesus. It's the night of his betrayal. And he's giving some final encouragements, exhortations, teachings, parables, examples to his disciples before he goes. And one of those teachings is very interesting, and it is about a vine dresser, a vine, branches, and fruit. So starting in verse 1, will you read with me in John chapter 15? Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I want, to, I want us to remember that phrase. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. We don't often quote Jesus on that one, do we? He said it. Uh, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now we're going to turn a few pages, still in the New Testament, but we're going to look at the book of Galatians in chapter 5. Galatians is in letter format. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote a lot of letters. Much of the New Testament is made up of these letters. In this specific letter, the churches in Galatia had a problem. And the problem was they were being impacted by a group of people known as Judaizers. And what these people were doing is they were trying to enforce ceremonial and, and traditional uh, practices on the believers, almost as, I would say, uh, a prerequisite or a requirement for salvation. So obviously it was a perversion of the gospel of grace. And so Paul comes against this message that the Judaizers are bringing, and he reminds the believers of Galatia about their freedom in Christ. He first rebukes them, even says, Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who have you let speak into your life such foolishness? Who have you let deceive you into thinking that works can be added to the gospel of grace in order to gain you access to eternal life and communion with the Father? And then he lays out the truth of the matter, the freedom that we have in Christ. Now in Galatians 5, it's interesting because Paul brings a little bit of balance to his message to the Galatians. And he says, yes, you are free. But do not use your freedom as a license for the flesh. Another way of saying that, as a license for sin. But instead, live a life, yes, in freedom. But true freedom is found in submission to the Holy Spirit. And so here's where we find the message of Paul, starting in verse 16, the fruit of the Spirit. I have to turn to it still. I forgot. <laughs> uh, you have, can't just press a button. 
Some of you can, which is fine and great, and I have to turn. Here we go. Galatians 5, starting in verse 16, it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing things you want to do. But if you... But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. And as I read this list, I want you, us, to listen very intently. Because some of these works of the flesh or works of sin are shiny and easy to point out, point the finger and say, why are you doing that? And others of these works of the flesh have a tendency to reside below the surface and become a little bit easier for us to justify in our self-righteousness in thinking, well, it's not that bad. I just want, as we read this list, to consider the comparison between the shiny and the unshiny and the way that Paul seems to think they are in the same boat. So let's read. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. I'm going to pause there. Easy to condemn. Those are bad. Christians do not operate in those. Bad. Now let's continue. (laughs) Jealousy. Same boat. Fits of anger. Same boat. Rivalries. Dissensions. I encourage you to look that one up later. Divisions. You can look that one up too if you don't know the definition of it. Envy. Drunkenness, orgies, and and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, if Paul warned you twice, you had better heed the warning. And this is the warning, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. (gasps) Paul, how, how could you? Blessed is he who is not offended by me. Now the good news, but the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus, Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Get this one. This is one of my favorites. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Okay. I think we should pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword dividing between joints and marrow, even between soul and spirit. We open our hearts wide to you today. Heaven invade. In heaven invade. Spirit, have your way. And heaven invade, and heaven invade, Spirit.
good harms over here. My goodness. That's what we ask right now. Heaven invade. Spirit, have your way in our hearts. Let your word convict us and transform us from the inside out. Amen. In Jesus' name, amen. Sorry. I forgot to say amen. <laughs> People all had their heads bowed. I'm like, no, we're, come on. We're here we go. <laughs> so uh, the reason for the title of this message, Palmology, Palmology is the word for the study of fruit. I told you we were talking about fruit. Palmology is the study of fruit. I know that because I found it on the internet. I looked at a few different sources. It's actually true. The study of fruit is called pomology. Trust me. Now, we're going to become Padawan pomologists this morning, this afternoon. And if you don't know what the term Padawan is, I'm not going to say, I'm, I'm going to use the words of Paul. Not a message from God, but just my opinion on this one. You should go watch Star Wars. But that's not, I'm not speaking on behalf of, of the elders or anything like that. That's just my personal opinion. A Padawan, if you haven't watched Star Wars, is a beginner, a trainee, okay, in the beginning. So we're not going to become master pomologists today. We're going to become Padawan pomologists. And in order to begin our very short degree in pomology, we're going to learn some very important facts about fruit. Are we ready for the facts? <laughs> I don't know if we are. Okay, first of all. Okay, there's my, there's my lone banana. Okay. A strawberry is not actually a berry, but a banana is. Oh. <laughs> Orange. Not even in the top 10 common foods in vitamin C levels. I mean, literally, on my vitamin C pills at home, there's an orange on the front. But ounce for ounce, it's not even in the top 10. It's not what my grandma said, but... Okay, this one churchgoers are going to love. I don't know what it is about Jesus followers and coffee, but there's some kind of interesting association there. I, and I'm one of them, so... Coffee beans aren't actually beans. They're fruit pits. So now, when you're enjoying your first, second, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth cup of coffee, you can take this great comfort in that I am consuming fruit, kind of. <laughs> kind of. Fruit pits. Okay, back to bananas. Bananas are slightly radioactive. And humans share 50% of their DNA with bananas. <laughs> Fruits do not stop ripening or transforming when they are pulled off the vine, but they continue to interact with their environments for several days, as we know about these. Avocados, which have a sweet spot of approximately five seconds. <laughs> this morning... The avocado, this is a green one, it's, you can barely chew through it, and tonight it'll be rotten. <laughs> they continue to change in their environments. Now, this is a fun one. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, we'll go with this. Most grocery store stickers on fruit, edible. 
but that does not mean that you should eat them. This, no, this is not in the Bible, but just because you can doesn't mean you should. Paul kind of says that. He says, he says, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. Okay? I w- don't advise eating the stickers from the fruit in the store. Okay, this is, I love this one. Okay, so, pineapples. In the 1700s, these were very expensive. Are they expensive now? My mom says they're about three bucks. I don't know. It seems like it's pretty enough to be, you know, worth three bucks. It's kind of, it could be even a decoration. You never have to, you never have to cut it up and, and peel it. For me, I, I, I struggle with pineapples because after you cut it up and, and, and you peel it, you lose about half the pineapple. And so I just, I'm looking at this thing and I think I'm going to get this amount of fruit. And really there's this like little pillar of fruit that you get from it. But in the 1700s, the American colonists, because it was so expensive, they would literally go and rent a pineapple and bring it to a party to appear wealthy. (laughs) Like going and like renting a nice car for an event, like for prom or something. No, no, and the colonists would rent a pineapple and be like, I'm kind of a big deal. (laughs) People know me, as you can tell. Okay, last but not least, (laughs) no emails. No offended emails about this one. Just receive and listen, and if you don't like it, just test it, and you don't have to receive it, okay? Just test it in your own heart, and you don't have to receive it if you don't want it. Watermelons. What's it called? Citrulline. Watermelons contain an ingredient called citrulline, which can unleash a compound that it, um, it's, it relaxes the blood vessels, just like you guessed it, Viagra. Okay. We're going to go back to the scriptures now. Moving, Moving right along. This... <laughs> All right. Obviously, my dad didn't receive it. <laughs> okay. Did I drop my pen? Okay, so we, we've had our intro. We are now all Padawan pomologists after that, after those very key facts about fruit. Now, fruit, it, um, it appears over and over again in the scriptures. The, the concept of fruit is very, very prevalent. In the Old Testament, the word is peri, and it occurs 119 times, 119 times in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, which is much shorter, the word is karpas, and it appears 66 times. Times. Now, peri and karpos, the Hebrew, the Greek, they're used in, in the same way. It's just a different language. And sometimes they mean literal fruit. But even more importantly, what they're pointing out is a more figurative fruit that we would translate as effect or result or product. Now, some examples that might stick out in your mind from the scriptures, other than what I already read from John chapter 15 and Galatians 5, are in Psalm chapter 1. The psalmist says that he describes a righteous person as a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And then the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased 
tree bears bad fruit. Bears bad fruit, period. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Now, going back to the very beginning of creation, you might remember that fruit has been a part of the story of humanity for a very long time. So we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to eavesdrop. I'm getting punnier as I get older. Have you noticed that? That as people get older, they get punnier? I just remember Don Lynn when he was on staff. He would have a pun all the stinking time. I was so, they were painful. That one, I mean, it was, that, was a, that was a little cringy, uh, eavesdropping. But anyway, we're going to eavesdrop on this conversation. It starts in verse 2. It says, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. I added the tone but in the inflection, but don't, don't you picture it that way? He like just has that deceptive, well, it's like, You won't die right away. I mean, you'll be separated from God and won't be able to commune with him the same way, but you won't die instantly. That's what he does. He just twists the truth just a little bit, just a little bit, just a hair. But all it takes is a little, a few degrees of separation on a trajectory, and you're headed in a completely different direction eventually. He continues, for God knows that when you, when you eat of you. When you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Isn't that just like the deceiver to make you question the heart of God? To make you question his intentions. That is how sin began on this earth. We were deceived into thinking that God was not for us. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she, gave, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of the both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now with over 180 mentions of these words for fruit, peri and karpas, in the Bible as a whole, and 46 of them occurring in just the Gospels, most of them straight from the mouth of Jesus. I wonder what God is trying to teach us about fruit or what God is trying to teach us through fruit. And I think one of the initial responses we might have whenever we hear the word fruit and we see the way that it's used in the scriptures is for us to equate it with the word works. When we see fruit, we go, oh, that's, that's Jesus' way of saying works. But I'm concerned that that actually isn't true. Now, I'm not at all trying to make an argument that they are unrelated or that it's 100% wrong to, to correlate works and fruit or that it's completely missing the boat when we think of those hand in hand because I think they are hand in hand, but they're two different hands. It's very interesting that in Galatians chapter 5, Paul actually uses the word works, a different Greek word, ergon, when he's talking about the works of the flesh. But then he compares them to the fruit of the Spirit, karpos. Ergon, karpos, two different Greek words. And then in Colossians 1, 
I don't have this one memorized, so I'm going to have to say it, read it. In Colossians 1, Paul says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Hear this. Bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit in every good work. And increasing in the knowledge of God. Again, we see the words ergon and karpos used in partnership, but as two separate words. And looking through the dozens of uses that I went through, both in the Old Testament and, and the New, I, I, I have to come to the conclusion that although works and fruit definitely have a relationship, there are two different elements of life. You know, um, I think that in order to further unpack this, we need to look back at John chapter 15. So if you guys would turn there with me again. Um, actually, my pen's gone. Oh, no, it's here. Okay. John chapter 15, we're going to start in verse 4 this time. We're just going to read a small uh, snippet of what I read to you before. John chapter 15, verse 4, it says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, when we read that specific selection of verses, would you say, it might be fair to say that something that sticks out is this concept of abiding. Fair? Jesus seems, it seems to be very important to Jesus, this concept of abiding as, as the way to which someone can bear good fruit. Now, abide in the English um, is the verb tense of abode, which I never use the term abode unless I'm saying this specific phrase, welcome to my humble abode. <laughs> Literally, I, it's, like, it's like that word and that phrase, that's the only place where that exists. But I'm, some of you may use it more, which that's awesome. You guys are more proper and it's cool and I, I love expanded vocabularies and you guys are further along than me. I just say this is my house. But abode is a place where you live, it's your home, or a place where you stay, and so abide is simply to stay, or to make home, or to, to, to remain in a place. Now, that's in the English, but we have to go back to the original language. Seth, why do you keep going back to the Greek? Because it's the original language that the New Testament was written in, and we believe that the inspiration of Scripture happened from God to the person who is writing it, and not from the English translators later on. Do you feel me? I'm sorry, if I lost you... I, I know that that might be a little challenging, but the English translation is not what we believe is the, perfect, is the perfect part of the breathed word. We believe that God spoke the word, that every word of the Bible is true and inspired by God, but English translators are not the ones who are inspired. Now, we're thankful for them, and we thank, we're so thankful for all these different translations and versions that have been put forth, and all, I, I love the different ones because they bring different insights to what the original languages meant, because you actually go back to the original languages, you'll understand why there are so many English versions, because Greek and Hebrew are so expansive, and, and, and they're just such, they're so, they're formed so differently than, the, than, than English is, but if we go to the Greek, and we're talking about the word abide, we're going to see that it is the word meno, and meno is to stay or remain or, or abide, of course. But my favorite, I think, definition for meno is to continue to be present. To continue to be present. So Jesus, in comparing us to branches attached to a vine, is apparently saying that we cannot produce the results, fruit, we cannot produce the results that the Father desires 
unless we are remaining present with him. We can produce nothing of worth without real connection as a branch to a vine with Jesus. So if we know that we can't produce good fruit without making our home and remaining in Jesus, we know that. That's, that's what Jesus said. But what is good fruit? What is good fruit? Well, thankfully, Galatians 5 describes that pretty well. So we're going to look back and see the insight that Paul brings, starting in verse 22, about what good fruit looks like. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I, I didn't say this in any of the other gatherings, but I felt like the Lord dropped this on my heart in between gatherings. And I just want to ask you a question. I'm not going to make a statement. I'm going to ask you a question. Has your life produced during the time of COVID-19 and racial tensions? Oh my gosh, people are already shutting off their ears to me. I can already, I can already hear it. Go, oh, you can't say that. No. During the time of COVID-19 and racial tensions, has your life looked more like the fruit of the spirit or the works of the flesh? When people have thought about your response... Do they think division, dissension, or gentleness and peace? No statement, just a question. Just a question. When I see this list, I don't see a list of to-dos or a list of tasks. Not at all, really. When I look at this list, I, I see something that Paul is trying to get to a deeper a, a deeper part of the matter, something that appears to be more of a matter of the heart, something that is more about being than it is about doing. Now, while each of these words have necessary actions, necessary actions tied to them, again, I'm not trying to divorce works from fruit. I'm just trying to say they're not the same thing. They're friends, but they're not the same thing. You see, works are more of the literal actions that we, we, that we live out. There, there's something that we do. There's something that, that happens. But, 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 but fruit, I, 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 I'm led to conclude that fruit is a natural outflow of an inward state. Think about it in a literal sense with a tree or, or a vine. It's a natural outflow of an inward state, which is pretty on message with what Jesus came to say, especially when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. You have heard it said, but I say. Paul also confirms in Galatians chapter 5 what Jesus was talking about as the source of good fruit. In verse 16 he says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Commune with God and you will not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. In summation, if we walk by the Spirit, if we belong to Christ, if we live by the Spirit, we will not be led by our fleshly passions, but we will be led even step for step by the Spirit of God. 
No. Jesus teaches us that we cannot produce. I I know I'm repeating myself, but I'm trying to build as we go. He teaches us that we cannot produce good fruit unless we are attached, connected to him like the like the branch is connected to the vine. And then Paul teaches us that what good fruit looks like is, is, is a matter of the heart. It's, it's something that describes our inward being. It's, it's a, a natural outflow of an inward state. Now, why is that important? And this is what I felt like God dropped on my heart and the whole reason, the whole thing I'm getting at. I believe that fruit is so important in the Bible because it teaches us about the paradox of grace and truth. Have you ever wondered, and you go, wait, so I'm saved by grace, that's not my doing, but like, when I'm saved, I should probably change, be more like Jesus, but like, do I have to, or am I the only one? It's a paradox, and this is what I believe that fruit teaches us about the paradox, It teaches us first that we cannot save ourselves by simply carrying out good works. Remember, you can do nothing apart from me. That's what Jesus said. That we can can conjure nothing of worth without a real connection with Jesus. That anything that proceeds from the branch truly comes from the vine that it is connected to. We are saved by grace, full stop. Then by the same token, Fruit teaches us that when we are saved by grace, it produces something in us. To be a branch of the good vine is to bear good fruit. Jesus doesn't leave space for anything else. To those who belong to Christ, or those who belong to Christ will walk by and even in step with the spirit of truth. Now, with the ongoing parable of fruit, Jesus, he's, he's I, I don't mean to say this flippantly, but he's a little tricky in a, real, in a great way, in a great way, in a way that only God could do, in a, in a wisdom that is so much more profound than just a simple answer. Jesus, with the parable, the ongoing parable of fruit in the Gospels and then throughout the New Testament, he, he gives us neither the excuse to, to strive and try to earn our way to his favor, nor... the the license to lean on the crutch of our flesh and the the crutch of our sin to allow for the absence of good results. He doesn't allow either. That's what fruit teaches us. You can't do anything apart from me, but if you have me, Something's going to happen. Now, I think that sometimes we get this picture in our heads of grace. Okay? Unmerited favor in the English. I'm a kid. This is the bar. We get this picture that dad had the bar set high during the old covenant. Oh, it was so high. And then all of a sudden, he changes his mind. He goes, no, let's bring it real low for you because you guys are <laughs> really bad at stuff. <laughs> I mean, you, it could be perceived that way. But grace is more so the revelation that the bar hasn't been brought down, 
but it's more so the revelation that the bar was never in reach without a lift from dad's hands. Said another way, grace is not a picture of the vine dresser tolerating a branch that never bears good fruit, but instead grace is a revelation that good fruit was never a possible result without attachment to the good vine. Grace is not a lowering of the standard. It's not easier. It's simply an understanding that we were never meant to walk in the fullness without being led, inspired by, and literally dwelling within God himself. We weren't supposed to be able to do well without dad. That's not how we're built. And so, now that we know that we can't bear good fruit without abiding in Jesus, and good fruit looks like these certain things, I think that the the question that we're left with to complete the picture is, how in the world do I abide in Jesus? What does that look like? How can I actually do that? Like you say it, but it sounds a little, again, to quote Buddy the Elf, a little swirly-twirly, Seth. What does it look like to abide in an invisible God? Well, I think that I have four very simple, but maybe not easy practices that I want to leave you with today. This will be the last thing. I want to leave them with you to abide in Jesus. And And I think that we're instructed straight from the scriptures about this. The first simple practice is this. Embrace his word. Oh, another, another instruction to do my daily devotions. No, 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 Stay with me. John 15, 10 says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Sometimes I think that we, we look at the, we look, Jesus says it so plainly. If you love me, you will obey me. And we go, I don't know, Jesus, that sounds like a gospel of works to me. First of all, Jesus is the author of the gospel. You should find all of your revelation that you have of the gospel in him, not your own perception of what the gospel should look like. And second of all, that's not what Jesus is getting at. What Jesus is getting at is this. If I am in you and you are in me, I am going to overflow from you. I cannot be within you without flowing out of you. If you are in me, you will be transformed by a simple law of nature. He's not saying well, you know, you better, you better just prove that I'm in you by doing something good. He's saying, look, the moment I get in you, everything about you is going to begin to change. It's going to be a natural outflow of an inward state. If we're going to abide in Jesus, we must obey, embrace Fully give ourselves to his word, to his teachings, to his, to his scriptures. Secondly, the, the other simple practice, embrace his way. First one was embrace his word. The second one is embrace his way. Well, isn't embrace his word and embrace his way the same thing? No, 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 not exactly. How many of you are familiar with the red letter Bible? Where the Bible, wherever Jesus is talking, it's in red. Yes? 
familiar? Love it. Like it. Super fun. I, I, always, I love to see the actual words that Jesus spoke and, the, and how those are automatically highlighted. Because otherwise, if it's just a black letter Bible, I end up highlighting all the words that Jesus spoke anyway because they're extremely important. However, I think the danger of the red letter Bible is this. That we give all of our attention to the teachings of Jesus and we completely ignore the way that he walked. Because it is in those black letters that his way is described. His practices. His rhythms. The way in which he conducted himself as a human being. In his initial encounter with the disciples, his first thing wasn't, come and do as I say. It was, Come follow me. Come, and another word, another word for disciple, another way that that can be translated that I think can be very helpful is apprentice. Come watch me in what I do and do the very same thing that I did. Sometimes I think that we're so, we're so kind of like, tunnel vision on the teachings of Jesus, but which is, in, they're wonderful, and that's why that was the first practice, was to embrace his word. But here's the thing. Jesus was not primarily, oh, ooh, I don't know if that's true. It would appear to me that Jesus is not primarily, or at least solely, a theologian, but he was a practitioner. Jesus gave us the perfect example of what it looks like to walk this earth as a human being. He was the perfecter of the art of being human. And so if we're going to walk in the fullness of the calling upon our lives, we need not only do as he said, but to do as he did. To walk in the way of Jesus is necessary to abiding in him. The third practical, uh, or the third simple practice is this. Embrace his spirit. We're going to look at some scriptures. Did I give scriptures for his way? I don't think I did. All right, I'm going to give them. Embrace his way. 1 John 2, 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And then 1 John 3, 6. 2, 6 is hard enough. 3, 6, whole other level. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. All right. Embrace his spirit, 1 John 2.27, but the anointing, the anointing is a ministry or, a, or an expression of the Holy Spirit, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And then 1 John 14, I'm sorry, 4.13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. You know, sometimes I think the Western church does not take Jesus at his word when he says, it is to your benefit that I go. We go, no, 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 not far be it from you, Jesus. Does that sound familiar? Far be it from you, Jesus, to to go and say, and, and to say that it's to our benefit that you go. Where Jesus might come to you and say, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, wrong attitude. Get behind me, wrong perspective. Because Jesus said, it is to your benefit because I will send to you another helper, another advocate, another friend, another teacher, another guide. I will send to you the parakletos, the one who is close enough to make the call. If we truly took Jesus for his word, we would not shy away from this Holy Spirit. 
We would not be in our American churches just celebrating the Father and the Son and the Father and the Son. And as soon as someone says Holy Spirit, because they go, oh no, this isn't that kind of church. You're really telling me you're going to ignore a third of the triune God? What is wrong with you? That's heresy. Sorry, I got a little passionate. I find it very interesting in Acts chapter 6. The apostles were having a problem. The problem was a people. I'm going to describe that a little more. Don't get offended. People are the problem, but people are also the prize. Now, the apostles were finding that there was need for much service, for waiting of tables and serving widows and helping people, you know, being the church. But they knew that they needed to get, dedicate themselves to the prayers and to the teaching of the word so that they could inst- continue to instruct and to shepherd the people into the way of Jesus. And so what did they do? They appointed some administrators or ministers or deacons or servants or however you want to translate that. They appointed them, but what's so interesting to me was the qualifications of these. He said, brothers, appoint from among you those who are above reproach, and then full of the Spirit. It's really easy to read over that passage and say, yeah, we're supposed to be full of the Spirit. That's a good thing. But it's interesting to me that the apostles would make that distinction because it would seem to me that what they believed, what, that there were believers, he said, brothers from among you, not among unbelievers, and ab- brothers from among you, appoint those who are full of the Holy Spirit. Why would he make that distinction? Or why would they make that distinction? Because I think it was apparent to the apostles that there were some that were born again of the Spirit. They were marked by the Spirit. They were sealed by the Spirit, but they weren't full. Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, but be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. In order to walk in the fullness of abiding in Christ and the fullness of our calling, we must be full of the Spirit. Yes, we should be in loving relationship with the Father and the Son, but for us to ignore the Spirit is to ignore a portion of what we are here doing. And you know, sometimes when we talk about fullness of the Spirit, there can be this thing, this kind of like insecurity and offense because it's like, well, well wait, how do I, I, I don't know if I can. It seems like there's just certain people who are full of Spirit and I, I just, I don't really, th- no. You who are evil, give good gifts to your kids. How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? I think sometimes we look at the fullness of the Spirit and we look at God as this like stingy dad who's got the Spirit and he's like, well, we'll see if you're good enough. And then maybe I'll pour out my spirit on you. That's not the picture Jesus was painting at all. But sometimes that's in our heads because we have this thing, we have this thing that we need to please and then we'll be blessed. We need to please and then we'll be blessed. But, but I, I, think the, I think the picture that Jesus is painting of the Father is a much more beautiful one. He goes, okay, I'm pouring. Come under. I'm just going to keep pouring and you come step under. You come step under and I will fill you to overflow. You need only ask dad. 
Just ask Dad. Come over here. Just ask. Just one. Being filled with the Spirit isn't an earning thing. It's a yearning thing. Are you hungry for Him? Do you want Him? Are you asking for Him? Is it important to you? Is it a value in your life? Because of the answer to those things, then yes, here is the beautiful message of peace and assurance that I can give to you today. You will be filled. You will be filled to overflow, spilling on people as you go. And finally, I think maybe the most simple from Matthew chapter 11 is come to him. This scripture has been ministering to me so deeply lately because I just feel Jesus speaking right to me. And I just want to release this as a prophetic word to all of you. As I speak the logos, let it become the rhema. Verse 28 in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So simple, to come to Jesus, yet we make it so hard, we make it so ceremonial, we make it so religious, got to do my little seance in order for the Holy Spirit's presence to be here. No, you do not. You do not need to do a religious practice in order to be in the presence of God. You know, you know how far he is away? A lifting of the eyes and a turning of the head. He is exactly as far away as the direction of your attention and your affection. That's how far the presence of God is from you. It could be said this way. He's always with me, but I'm not always with him. It's a choice. It is a choice to come to him. But I would also say this. I'm not going to get into this, but I believe some people are called to be married and some people are not called to be married. At some point, there's been pendulum swings in the church where all of a sudden it was super holy to not be married and now it's super holy to be married when Paul, that's not the message of Paul that he gives at all. In fact, he's, never mind. Some are called to be married, some are not, period. So I'll, I'll, I'll speak to the married folks. If you only went on group dates with your spouse for all of life, just picture that for a moment. And then as, as someone who's unmarried, if you only did group hangouts with someone that you saw as your best friend for all of your life, just picture that for a minute. You would have memories. You'd have exper- wonderful experiences. You'd have great connections. You'd have fun. But you would never have intimacy. You would never have intimacy. And so I want to thank you for coming to this group date with God today. But I also want to encourage you, don't settle for group dates with God. Jesus, all throughout his life and his ministry, what did he do? He would minister, and then he would go to a quiet place. How can it be that the perfect spotless lamb, the son of the most high God, the manifestation of God himself on earth, apparently needed something? Now, all the theologians in the room who think that that was heretical, let me explain myself. I don't think that God is absent of something. But in his human state, Jesus found himself in the best way that I can describe it in English is 
in need. What was he in need of? To be alone with the Father. And if the one who knew no sin needed to get alone with the Father, how much more do I? How much more do you? Do not settle for group dates with God. All right, done. Okay, two questions. Both of them will have the same answer according to the Bible. Are you abiding in Jesus? Are you producing good fruit? One doesn't happen without the other. The answer to the first is yes. The second is yes. The answer to the first is no. The answer is no. The second. I think there's going to be some people in this room today who you're saying, no, so Seth, I believe in Jesus and he's my savior, he's my Lord and I, you know, got my, got my ticket to heaven. But there's just so much more. Like sometimes I just want to, I just, people are like, well, is it a salvation issue? And I'm like, did you know that there's more? Did you know that there's more than a ticket to heaven? Did you know that the kingdom is at hand? Did you know that he's near? Did you know that he is accomplishing things and waging war and doing miracles and changing the atmosphere here? So you might find yourself with your ticket to heaven. And that's, that's good. I'm glad. We'll hang out. But I just want to invite you into something a little bit, a little bit more. And that is, if you haven't found yourself abiding in Jesus or, or bearing good fruit, something that's so beautiful about, about this, this walk is that repentance is very, very accessible. So I, w- I want you all to do this practice. You don't have to stand up. It made it look like I wanted you to stand up, but I don't. We're just going to repent from not abiding in Jesus by abiding in Jesus for a moment. Would you close your eyes with me? This is what I would ask you to do, simple things. Set your attention on Jesus right now and give him your affections. You don't even have to say anything. I'm just saying set your attention and your affection upon Jesus right now. There he is. There he is. And there's your first step toward repentance. There's our first step toward repentance of a lack of abiding. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we recognize your presence. We recognize that you are God with us, Emmanuel. Now, I want to I talk really briefly to a second group of people. And, 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 and maybe you're in here today and you're saying, I can't abide in him because I have not known him. I have not walked in this personal relationship with him and believing upon him as my source of salvation, as the one true connection with the Father God, the only way to eternal life. And Jesus often throughout his ministry, he would give an invitation, and that's what I want to give to you today. If you want to say yes to this beautiful invitation that the Father is giving by saying, look, you sinned, that separated us because I'm holy. I sent my son, son, pure and spotless, so that he would become your sin, so that you might become my righteousness. And all you need to do is say yes. And so if that's you in this place and you want to say yes 
after living life for yourself and not in connection with Jesus, I would just ask you to raise your hand right now because we want to celebrate with you and we want to walk with you. Okay. Father, I thank you for all these beautiful people. I thank you for your presence. I thank you for those who maybe had the stirring in the heart but didn't feel comfortable raising their hand. I get it. I pray that you would meet them, that you encounter them in a precious way and that they would learn how to abide in you, that we would learn how to abide in you in a truer and more full way. I bless every person in this room and those who have tuned in online. I bless them all in the name of Jesus. And we ask that you would bring us into a greater awareness of your presence, that we would remain present with you so that we might bear good fruit that we might be full of love and joy and peace and gentleness and goodness and self-control and be your representatives to this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Pomology. Thank you so much for being with us today. If you want to join us for a blessing of the bikes, even if you're not a biker, we're going to go out there, we're going to hear an encouragement, we're going to worship together. We'd love to have you join us. Otherwise, have a wonderful week.